0: This morning we are returning to the lectionary texts. On Monday I sat down and looked up the text in the lectionary as I do, and wrote the liturgy and wrote my sermon. And then Tuesday morning when I met with Josh, he gently pointed out to me that Zacchaeus is not in the lectionary this year. And I realized I had looked up next year's lectionary texts, but thankfully Josh was flexible and said, let's go with it. You already wrote the sermon, you don't want to write another. So. If you're here today, then congratulations, you're excused from church on October 30th, 2022. (laughs) Make your plans now. So uh, as we prepare now to hear the word of God read and proclaimed, let us begin with a word of prayer. O Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Therefore, illumine now our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit. That as the scriptures are read and your word proclaimed, we might receive with joy what you have to say to us today. These prayers we make in the name of Jesus, the word made flesh. Amen. The Old Testament lesson is Psalm 32, verses 1 through 7. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. While I kept silence, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all who are faithful offer prayer to you. At a time of distress, the rush of mighty waters shall not reach them. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with glad cries of deliverance. And the New Testament lesson comes from the book of Luke, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him, because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, Jesus has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because Zacchaeus too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man Came to seek out and to save the lost. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Anyone who's cracked open the Bible at least once knows that Jesus is a friend of the poor and the oppressed. Jesus takes the side of the hungry, the thirsty, the sick, the naked, the stranger and the imprisoned. To the poor, Jesus brings good news. To the outcast, Jesus brings open arms. So it comes as a bit of a surprise that as he enters Jericho, Jesus seeks out Zacchaeus, wee little man that he is who has climbed up in a sycamore tree to see what he could see. Zacchaeus is not poor or oppressed. He's privileged. He's rich, right? He's someone with political and economic power. Zacchaeus may be short in stature, but he's climbed high on the Roman system of exploitation. You see, taxes were not collected by civil servants, but by men who scuffled for the rights to tax certain areas and districts. If you lived in Jericho and Zacchaeus came to your door to collect your taxes, you would be obliged to give him whatever he asked of you. You had no way of knowing what your tax bracket was or what amount you should rightfully have to pay. If Rome only demanded $100 for your household, Zacchaeus could ask you for 150, and he would then hand over the 100 to Rome and keep the extra 50 for himself. It was kind of like the ancient equivalent of those horrible administrative fees we pay today. You see, that's how tax collectors became so rich and so hated. They would charge extra and skim it off the top to line their own pockets. And Zacchaeus, who Luke calls the chief tax collector, had clearly made good use of this system that was begging to be exploited. So we might expect Jesus to pronounce judgment on Zacchaeus, right? After all, he's the bad guy. Well, that's not what Jesus does. Instead, he marches right up to the sycamore tree in which Zacchaeus is skulking, and he addresses him by name and says, Zacchaeus, hurry down, for I must stay in your house today. And Zacchaeus, bless his heart, scurries down from the tree with the enthusiasm of a puppy and shows Jesus the way to his home. The NRSV says, so he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. Luke offers four vibrant action verbs in succession here. It says Zacchaeus hurried and came down and welcomed him and rejoiced. These are discipleship verbs. Passionate followers of Jesus act with urgency. They're on task and welcoming. They're enthusiastic and joyful. New Christians are great at this. Maybe you've been around new believers who have lots of this kind of spunk. They want to learn and volunteer and get involved and do all the things. Their faith is contagious. But sometimes the rest of us lose this kind of enthusiasm in our faith along the way for whatever reason. Sometimes we just sort of get into our faith routines of coming to church and doing what we always do. We fulfill our faith duty, but we may not run ahead and climb trees to see what new thing God might be up to. Sometimes, instead of engaging in the slow process of theological discernment, we just want to be told what needs to be done so we can go ahead and get on with it. But an encounter with the living Lord should recalibrate our faith and reignite our passion to put our faith into action. One Sunday morning when I was in seminary, I showed up to preach at a church about an hour outside of Pittsburgh, and I was really early, so they let me in, and I went to the pulpit and was getting the lay of the land, and there was one person sitting out in the pews, and every few seconds he would move one seat to the right, one seat to the right, one seat to the right. So eventually I went over to him to say hello, and he seemed to want to explain himself because unprompted, he started to tell me a little bit about his story. He had grown disengaged in church and hadn't been around much. But then during a recent health scare, so many people had brought him meals or called to check in on him, and he was so grateful, but he had so many people involved in his care that he didn't know who to thank. So he had showed up early that morning to sit in every pew and pray for whoever would sit in that pew that day in worship, to be sure he had given thanks for everyone who had helped him. That's enthusiasm. That's joy. That's joy. And you see, a Jesus sighting should kindle any flame within us that has been dimming under the burden of the ordinary. Boredom is incompatible with Christianity. Jesus should always be sparking our interest, reinvigorating our passions, challenging us to more wholehearted discipleship. Discipleship is energizing and surprising and upbeat. Now, please don't misunderstand me here. I'm not suggesting that Christians should sugarcoat hard things, or put our heads in the sand when a wrong must be made right, or stop doing what needs to be done just because it's challenging. There are times when we must lament. There are times when we must weep with those who weep. There are times when we must take a stand against injustice despite heavy backlash. The point is not that Christians should always be happy or bubbly or ebullient. But grumpy, bored, and disengaged Christians do the gospel no favors at all. When Jesus comes and lodges with us, when Jesus calls us not by our titles or our reputations, but by our names, when Jesus summons us out of hiding because he has something he wants us to do, scramble down the tree, we must. Welcome him, we must. Receive him with joy, we must. We might wonder why it is that Zacchaeus exhibits such joy in our text. It says he joyfully welcomed Jesus. Maybe Zacchaeus was just relieved that Jesus didn't blast him for his dishonest dealings. Although he was probably used to being hated as a tax collector. Maybe Zacchaeus was excited that Jesus had spotted him. Although his choice of a sycamore tree may suggest that he wanted to see Jesus, but remain concealed. Maybe Zacchaeus was just glad to have some company, although it was very forward and not at all customary for Jesus to invite himself into Zacchaeus's home. But for whatever reason, Zacchaeus responds to Jesus joyfully. Well the enthusiasm with which Zacchaeus responds to Jesus is lacking in the crowd, which begins to grumble, at Jesus' choice of lodging. The crowd complains that Jesus has gone to be the guest of a sinner like Zacchaeus. Isn't it interesting how all of us have some group of people that we don't like to which we want to ascribe the title sinner? Usually in the Gospels, it's the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the scribes, the religious establishment who take issue with the poor and the outcast and the marginalized, and that's the tension. The rich and powerful and privileged individuals justify the plight of the poor by saying that their sin has gotten them into the mess that they've made. How dare Jesus then go and heal a leper on the Sabbath, for instance. But in the present text, it's the other way around. The crowd following Jesus doesn't like the rich and powerful Zacchaeus. It's Zacchaeus' fault their lives are hard. How dare Jesus go and lodge with the rich guy? God, my friends, we all search for scapegoats, don't we? We all have some group of people we don't like, and we tend to justify our disdain by ascribing to them the title of sinner or some other contemporary title of discord, deplorables, elitists communists fascists you know what i mean and if we were journeying with jesus we would all have been flabbergasted at some point along the way with jesus's choice of company just imagine jesus staying with your least favorite politician from across the aisle and you've captured the tension here wouldn't we all find ourselves murmuring among our crowd of like-minded individuals in such a circumstance? You see, to whatever extent we ourselves subscribe to an ideal of inclusion, there will come a time when Jesus associates with someone we would have preferred he exclude. But like Zacchaeus in our text today, all of those sinners have names. And it is the scandal of grace that Jesus knows their names. The scandal of grace is not that Jesus can forgive those who are different from us, but with whose plight we can sympathize. No, the scandal of grace is rather that Jesus can forgive those very people we feel so much righteous indignation in dismissing. In a Bible study I was once a part of, the subject of deathbed conversions became the hot topic for weeks at a time. Most people in that Bible study did not believe it was legitimate for a prisoner on death row to convert to Christianity on his deathbed and go to heaven like them. It seemed too easy. It seemed to let them off the hook. Grace had to stop somewhere, they seemed to think. We don't always think of grace as the most challenging of Christian doctrines, but when we take grace off the leash that we prefer to keep it on so that it doesn't get too wild and out of control, it can actually be a difficult doctrine to swallow sometimes. It challenges us more than we realize. At the very least, it challenges us to maintain our joy as Christ's disciples when he goes wandering off into the wrong crowd. Grace is scandalous, and because grace is forever scandalous, the task of discipleship is reconciliation, not condemnation. Condemnation cuts out sinners, but reconciliation brings transformation to sinners. Condemnation brings a tragic end to a tragic story, but reconciliation brings salvation and rewrites the story. So it was for Zacchaeus. For when Jesus receives him, rather than condemning him, Zacchaeus repents and vows to pursue reconciliation by making right everything he has done wrong. You see, grace is like that. Grace is like that. It's irresistible. It's insistent. Jesus insists on staying in Zacchaeus's house. And so grace prompts his repentance. Grace comes first, his repentance follows. You see, for salvation to take to take shape, for Zacchaeus' salvation to take shape, for it to have meaning and for it to gain traction, Zacchaeus has to make things right. He needs to return the money to those he's defrauded. He has to face those he has wronged and seek to make things right. It's not enough for Zacchaeus to just say, I'll stop defrauding people from now on. No, he has to actually go back and make amends for past wrongs. After all, reconciliation is not just coexistence. It's not just an agreement between two bickering parties to leave each other alone. No, reconciliation demands an undoing of wrongs. Reconciliation takes tangible form. The Old Testament law required that a wrongdoer not only confess their sin, but also pay back the full repayment of the wrong and add 20%. Very specific. Zacchaeus offers to pay back much more than that, four times the amount defrauded, while also giving half his possessions to the poor. It's almost as if Zacchaeus repents and wants to make things right with the same enthusiasm with which he sought Jesus out along the way and welcomed him into his home. When do we know that reconciliation has taken place? We know that reconciliation has taken place when the wronged party is involved in the restoration of the wrongdoer. Zacchaeus isn't just going to give away half his possessions to the general poor in order to make himself feel better, in order to assuage his own guilt he's also going to specifically pay back the very people he defrauded. Zacchaeus needs those he has wronged in order to make things right. Now, some wrongs cannot be undone and are difficult to compensate for, right? It's hard to restore trust or dignity or other non-tangible things. It's hard to pay those things back. But other times, repentance can take concrete actions other times repentance comes in the form of returning what was unjustly taken it's one thing to make a vow never to do a certain thing again but to actually reach back into the past and try to make things right that's where the rubber hits the road friends here at riverside we aspire to be a movement for reconciliation it's a wonderful mission statement and a tall order because reconciliation is certainly not easy and in our culture which feels increasingly divided it seems like reconciliation isn't getting any easier but the good news of the gospel is that grace is a scandalous thing grace can transform even the hardest hearts into one of compassion and mercy grace can make way for specific and embodied repentance by which salvation can seep its way into even the most rigid of places. Jesus ends his encounter with Zacchaeus by declaring that he came to seek and save the lost. May it be so in our church and in our world as well. May the God who has sought and saved us also prompt us to be the movement of reconciliation we aspire to be, as we serve the God who is still seeking and saving the lost. Alleluia and thanks be to God. Amen.